Chapter thirty five of Plain Tales from the Hills. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. Plain Tales from the Hills by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter thirty five. To be held for reference. By the hoof of the wild goat, up tossed from the cliff where she lay in the sun, fell the stone. To the tarn where the daylight is lost, so she fell from the light of the sun, and alone. Now the fall was ordained from the first, with the goat and the cliff and the tarn, but the stone knows only her life is accursed, as she sinks to the depths of the tarn, and alone. O thou who hast builded the world, O thou who hast lighted the sun, O thou who hast darkened the tarn, judge thou the sin of the stone that was hurled by the goat from the light of the sun, as she sinks in the mire of the tarn. Even now, even now, even now. From the unpublished pages of Mackintosh Jelladon. Say, is it dawn, is it dusk in thy bower? Thou who I long for, who longest for me, oh, be it night, be it. Here he fell over a little camel colt that was sleeping in the Sarai, where the horse-traders and the best of the blackguards from Central Asia lived and because he was very drunk indeed, and the night was dark, he could not rise again till I helped him. And that was the beginning of my acquaintance with Mackintosh Jalaluddin. When a loafer and drunk sings the song of the bower, he must be worth cultivating. He got off the camel's back and said rather thickly, I, I am a bit screwed, but a dip in loggerhead will put me right again. And I say, have you spoken to synods about the mare's knees? Now, Loggerhead was six thousand weary miles away from us, close to Mesopotamia, where you mustn't fish and poaching is impossible, and Charlie Simmons' stable a half-mile further across the paddocks. It was strange to hear all the old names on a May night among the horses and camels of the Sultan Caravansari. Then the man seemed to remember himself and sober down at the same time. He leaned against the camel and pointed to a corner of the Sarai, where a lamp was burning. I live there, said he, and I should be extremely obliged if you'd be good enough to help my mutinous feet thither, for I'm more than usually drunk, most most phenomenally tight, but not in respect to my head. My brain cries out against How does it go? But my head rides on the rolls on the dunghill, I should have said, and controls the qualm. I helped him through the gangs of tethered horses and he collapsed on the edge of the veranda in front of the line of native quarters. Thanks, a thousand thanks, O oh, moon and little, little stars, to think that a man should show shamelessly, infamous liquor, too. Ovid in exile drank nowheres. Better, it was frozen. Alas, I had no ice. Good night, I would introduce you to my wife were I sober, or she civilized. A native woman came out of the darkness of the room and began calling the man names, so I went away. He was the most interesting loafer that I had the pleasure of knowing for a long time, and later on he became a friend of mine. He was a tall, well-built, fair man, fearfully shaken with drink, and he looked nearer fifty than the thirty-five which he said was his real age. When a man begins to sink in India, and is not sent home by his friends as soon as may be, he falls very low from a respectable point of view. By the time that he changes his creed, as did Mackintosh, he has passed redemption. 
In most cities natives will tell you of two or three sahibs, generally low caste, who have turned Hindu or Mussulman, and who live more or less as such, but it is not often that you can get to know them. As Mackintosh himself used to say, if I change my religion for my stomach's sake, I do not seek to become a martyr to missionaries, nor am I anxious for notoriety. At the outset of acquaintance Mackintosh warned me, Remember this, I am not an object for charity. I require neither your money, your food, nor your cast-off raiment. I am that rare animal, a self-supporting drunkard. If you choose, I will smoke with you, for the tobacco of the bazaars does not, I admit, suit my palate. And I will borrow any books which you may not specially value. It's more than likely that I shall sell them for bottles of excessively filthy country liquors. In return you shall share such hospitality as my house affords. Here is a charpoy on which two can sit, and it's possible that there may, from time to time, be food in that platter. Drink, unfortunately, you will find on the premises at any hour, and thus I make you welcome to all my poor establishments. I was admitted to the Mackintosh household, and I and my good tobacco, but nothing else. Unluckily, one cannot visit a loafer at the Sarai by day. Friends buying horses would not understand it. Consequently, I was obliged to see Mackintosh after dark. He laughed at this, and said simply, You are perfectly right. When I enjoyed a position in society rather higher than yours, I should have done exactly the same thing. Good heavens! I was once—he uh, spoke as though he had fallen from the command of a regiment—I was once an Oxford man. This accounted for the reference to Charlie Simmons' stable. You, said Mackintosh slowly, have not had that advantage but to outward appearance you do not seem possessed of a craving for strong drinks. On the whole, I fancy that you are the luckier of the two. Yet I am not certain. You are, forgive my saying so, even while I am smoking your excellent tobacco, painfully ignorant of many things. We were sitting together on the edge of his bedstead, for he owned no chairs, watching the horses being watered for the night, while the native woman was preparing dinner. I did not like being patronized by a loafer, but I was his guest for the time being, though he owned only one very torn alpaca coat and a pair of trousers made of gunny-bags. He took the pipe out of his mouth and went on judiciously. All things considered, I doubt whether you are the luckier. I do not refer to your extremely limited classical attainments, or your excruciating quantities, but to your gross ignorance of matters more immediately under your notice. That, for instance— he pointed to a woman cleaning a samovar near the well in the centre of the sarai. She was flicking the water out of the spout in regular cadenced jerks. There are ways and ways of cleaning samovars. If you know why she was doing her work in that particular fashion, you'd know what the Spanish monk meant when he said, I, the Trinity, illustrate, drinking watered orange pulp, in three sips the Aryan frustrate while he drains his at one gulp and many other things which are now hidden from your eyes. However, Mrs. Mackintosh has prepared dinner. Let us come and eat after the fashion of the people of the country, of whom, by the way, you know nothing. The native woman dipped her hand in the dish with us. This was wrong. The wife should always wait until the husband is eaten. Mackintosh Jalaluddin apologized, saying, It's an English prejudice which I have not been able to overcome, and she loves me. Why, I have never been able to understand. I foregathered with her at Jolundur three years ago, and she has remained with me ever since. I believe her to be moral, and know her to be skilled in cookery. 
He patted the woman's head as he spoke, and she cooed softly. She was not pretty to look at. McIntosh never told me what position he had held before his fall. He was, when sober, a scholar and a gentleman. When drunk, he was rather more of the first than the second. He used to get drunk about once a week for two days. On those occasions the native woman tended him while he raved in all tongues except his own. One day, indeed, he began reciting Atalanta in Caledon, and went through it to the end, beating time to the swing of the verse with a bedstead leg. But he did most of his ravings in Greek or German. The man's mind was a perfect rag-bag of useless things. Once, when he was beginning to get sober, he told me that I was the only rational being in the inferno into which he had descended. A Virgil in the shades, he said, and that in return for my tobacco he would, before he died, give me the materials of a new inferno that should make me greater than Dante. Then he fell asleep on a horse-blanket and woke up quite calm. Man, said he, when you have reached the uttermost depths of degradation, little incidents which would vex a higher life are to you of no consequence. Last night my soul was among the gods, but I make no doubt that my bestial body was writhing down here in the garbage. You were abominably drunk, if that's what you mean, I said. I was drunk, filthy drunk, I, who am the son of a man with whom you have no concern, I, who was once fellow of a college whose buttery hatch you have not seen, I was loathsomely drunk. But consider how lightly I am touched. It is nothing to me, less than nothing, for I do not even feel the headache which should be my portion. Now in a higher life how ghastly would have been my punishment, how bitter my repentance. Believe me, my friend, with a neglected education, the highest is as the lowest, always supposing each degree extreme. He turned round on the blanket, put his head between his fists, and continued, On the soul which I have lost, and on the conscience which I have killed, I tell you that I cannot feel. I am as the gods, knowing good and evil, but untouched by either. Is this enviable, or is it not? When a man has lost the warning of next morning's head, he must be in a bad state, I answered, looking at Mackintosh on the blanket, with his hair over his eyes and his lips blue-white that I did not think that insensibility good enough. For pity's sake, don't say that. I tell you, it is good and most enviable. Think of my consolations. Have you so many, then, Mackintosh? Certainly. Your attempts at sarcasm, which is essentially the weapon of a cultured man, are crude. First, my attainments, my classical and literary knowledge, blurred, perhaps, by immoderate drinking, which reminds me that before my soul went to the gods last night, I sold the Pickering Horace you so kindly lent me. Ditta Mull, the clothes-man, has it. It fetched ten annas, and may be redeemed for a rupee, but still infinitely superior to yours. Uh, secondly, the abiding affection of Mrs. Mackintosh, best of wives. Thirdly, a monument more enduring than brass, which I have built up in the seven years of my degradation. He stopped there and crawled across the room for a drink of water. He was very shaky and sick. He referred several times to his treasure, some great possession that he owned, but I held this to be the raving of drink. He was as poor and as proud as he could be. His manner was not pleasant, but he knew enough about the natives, among whom seven years of his life had been spent, to make his acquaintance worth having. He used actually to laugh at Strickland as an ignorant man. Ignorant west and east, he said. His boast was first that he was an Oxford man of rare and shining parts which may or may not have been true. 
I did not know enough to check his statements, and, secondly, that he had his hand on the pulse of native life, and that was a fact. As an Oxford man he struck me as a prig. He was always throwing his education about. As a Mohammedan fakir, as Mackintosh Jaladin, he was all that he wanted for my own ends. He smoked several pounds of my tobacco and taught me several ounces of things worth knowing. But he would never accept any gifts, not even when the cold weather came, and gripped the poor thin chest under the poor thin alpaca coat. He grew very angry and said that I had insulted him and that he was not going into hospital. He had lived like a beast and he would die, irrationally, like a man. As a matter of fact, he died of pneumonia, and on the night of his death sent over a grubby note asking me to come and help him to die. The native woman was weeping by the side of the bed. Mackintosh, wrapped in a cotton cloth, was too weak to resent a fur coat being thrown over him. He was very active as far as his mind was concerned, and his eyes were blazing. When he had abused the doctor who came with me so foully that the indignant old fellow left, he cursed me for a few minutes and calmed down. Then he told his wife to fetch out the book from a hole in the wall. She brought out a big bundle wrapped in the tail of a petticoat, of old sheets of miscellaneous note-pair, all numbered and covered with fine, cramped writing. Mackintosh ploughed his hand through the rubbish and stirred it up lovingly. This, he said, is my work, the book of Mackintosh Jaladudin, showing what he saw and how he lived and what befell him and others, being also an account of life and sins and death of Mother Maturin, what Misra Murad Ali Beg's book is to all other books on native life, will my work be to Misra Marad Ali Beg's. This, as will be conceded by anyone who knows Misra Ali Beg's book, was a sweeping statement. The papers did not look specially valuable, but Mackintosh handled them as if they were currency notes. Then he said slowly, In despite the many weaknesses of your education, you have been good to me. I will speak of your tobacco when I reach the gods. I owe you much thanks for many kindnesses, but I abominate indebtedness. For this reason, I bequeath to you now the monument more enduring than brass, my one book, rude and imperfect in parts, but, oh, how rare in others. I wonder if you will understand it. It's a gift more honorable than— uh, Bah! Where is my brain rambling to? You will mutilate it horribly. You will knock out the gems you call Latin quotations, you Philistine— and you will butcher the style to carve into your own jerky jargon, but you cannot destroy the whole of it. I bequeath it to you. Ethel, oh, my brain again, Mrs. Mackintosh, bear witness that I give the Sahib all these papers. They would be of no use to you, heart of my heart, and I lay it upon you, he turned to me here, that you do not let my book die in its present form. It is yours unconditionally, the story of Mackintosh Jellaludin, which is not the story of Mackintosh Jellaludin, but of a greater man than he, and of a far greater woman. Listen now, I am neither mad nor drunk. The book will make you famous. I said, Thank you, as the native woman put the bundle into my arms. My only baby, said Mackintosh with a smile. He was sinking fast, but he continued to talk as long as breath remained. I waited for the end, knowing that in six cases out of ten the dying man calls for his mother. He turned on his side and said, "'Say how it came into your possession. No one will believe you, but my name at least will live. You will treat it brutally, I know you will. 
Some of it must go, the public are fools and prudish fools. I was their servant once. But do your mangling gently, very gently. It's a great work, and I had paid for it in seven years' damnation. His voice stopped for ten or twelve breaths, and then he began mumbling a prayer of some kind in Greek. The native woman cried very bitterly. Lastly he rose in bed and said as loudly as slowly, "'Not guilty, my lord!' Then he fell back, and the stupor held him till he died. The native woman ran into the sarai among the horses and screamed and beat her breasts, for she had loved him. Perhaps his last sentence in life told what Mackintosh had once gone through, but saving the big bundle of old sheets in the cloth there was nothing in his room to say who or what he had been. The papers were in a hopeless muddle. Strickland helped me to sort them, and said that the writer was either an extreme liar or a most wonderful person. He thought the former. One of these days you may be able to judge for yourself. The bundle needed much expurgation, and was full of Greek nonsense at the head of the chapters, which has all been cut out. If the things are ever published, someone may perhaps remember this story, now printed as a safeguard to prove that Mackintosh, Jeladudin, and not I myself, wrote the book of Mother Maturin. I don't want the giant's robe to come true, in my case. End of chapter 35 to be held for reference and the end of plain tales from the hills by rudyard kipling recording by mike harris